1: and their essential love of
0: justice.
1: Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Find for July 24th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith.
3: Greetings from Atlanta.
1: And welcome, Tim Shipley. Good evening, sir. All right. Um, well, a big show tonight coming on the um, podcast for the first time in uh, I guess over a year, probably the longest uh, break from the show is our good friend from po- Public Policy Polling, Tim uh, Tom Jensen. He'll be coming on, and, and Tom has probably been one of our two most frequent guests in history. I think Tim, you had you, had, um, you know done the math on that, um, so it's great to have Tom come back in. Tell us a lot about polling. From around the country And so he'll be in here about 20 minutes But until then We're just going to kind of hit some smaller issues Last week we did the big um, Ranking of the Senate race And one race That none of the three of us ranked But has gotten very interesting But it's a very you know, strange dynamic To be honest Is Utah And so I thought we'd start off there To kind of piggyback off the last week um, in Utah, Mike Lee is running for re-election. Mike Lee, I think, is pretty controversial. He may, He's probably not as known as a, a Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, but he's definitely cut from that claw. He's running for re-election. Um, seemingly, the Democrats are not mounting a campaign against him because Evan McMullen, independent candidate, former Republican, who ran, you know, for president in 2016 um because he was a never trumper couldn't stomach Donald Trump but I guess couldn't stomach the idea of voting for a democrat either. He ran for president. Really, I think his impact was minimal to say the least, but he's from Utah. So he's running and right now the latest poll shows Mike Lee comfortably under 50. And I think it's a single-digit race, probably closer to 10 than one, but a single-digit race. Um, and this is pretty early in the campaign where people probably don't necessarily know the candidates. And so some, you know, Democratic-leading voters in Utah, and yes, those do exist. Uh, one of the congressional districts in the state has been more has been Democratic more than Republican in recent cycles. Um, they may not even know, hey – uh, the Democrats aren't building a candidate this time to even kind of make a decision on that race. So that, that's, that race is much more in play than one would predict in the state of Utah. Um, Catherine, what's your take on what's going on there with a Republican facing an independent?
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting because uh, it's really a Republican facing another Republican that decided to run as an independent. Um, I think that it, it will indicate,
2: you
3: know, it'll be another indicator of, you know, Trump of of the the support that Trump candidates have. So it'll be interesting to watch, and it's always it's always um, I find it refreshing to have independence in the Senate just for a. Um, sort of evens the balance a little bit. We'll it would be interesting to see who he votes with if he's elected.
1: Yes. Um, Tim, to me, I get the idea of Utah, and, and it's, it is a very Mormon state, um, is a state where people are very personally conservative in the way they live their life, but yet they kind of follow the rules. Uh, they're kind of good government people and, and that kind of sense of, you know, if you've decided to do something, you're going to do it by the law and by the book. And what that creates is conservative-leaning voters that don't function like Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, that ilk, people that were involved in the insurrection. I have a feeling if you had a heat map, even though Utah's so Republican, there probably weren't as many people from Utah – uh, commensurate with their population So that's kind of the dynamic I see it of the state So in this kind of race, what does that mean?
0: Well, I mean, you know, the Mormon church Runs that state If you're not a Mormon in that state, you're nothing And as far as as, as How they vote in, You know it, Lyndon Johnson's last Democrat to win that State in 1964 And that was in a blowout, landslide-type election. Uh, The compilation polling, and I think Nate Silver's bunch does it about as well as anybody, they got um, Lee ahead of McMullen, like 45.5 to 35.9, with like, uh, oh, 14%, 14% divided between... uh, a couple of uh, independents that are on the ballot, and then the rest is undecided. But uh, some of the breakdowns of this latest polling, especially the one you were talking about, uh, it it shows McMullen getting 63% of Democrats. I believe that, but 28% of Republicans, 41% of independents. Lee only gets 57 percent of Republican voters, and he's the incumbent senator. Uh, I do know that uh, uh Sabato or Sabato rather, Larry Sabato downgraded the race from safe Republican to likely Republican. And I think that's about where it stands right now. I, I still think he's going to win that race. He'll probably appeal. Uh, To Republicans To basically get in line uh, To coalesce around him And remind them he's the Republican In the race And although it'll be closer Than a lot of races out there should be I I think uh, I think he'll uh, he'll Emerge with a win
1: (laughs) Yes, uh, Catherine A figure that I haven't heard If he's endorsed and gotten involved Is Mitt Romney, um, even though Mitt Romney is, is the that. junior senator, yeah, so even though he's the junior senator from the state, um, he kind of has a much larger political profile, I certainly think, that Mike Lee, probably even the governor, Spencer Cox, um, so uh, Tim, I guess we'll ask you the question, and then we can come back to Catherine for thoughts, has Mitt Romney, as to you know, gotten involved in this race?
0: Not at all, and I'm not surprised that, that he hasn't. I don't think Lee would ask him unless Lee really thought that he was in trouble. Because those two butt heads on too many things.
1: Yeah. Well, well, that 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 brings me to the next question. and I will go back to Catherine for this, Catherine. In the end, do you think he gets involved, and do you think there's a chance he could possibly just throw caution to the wind and, and try to really, you know, get this. You know, it's about, for lack of a better word, Maverick Brand, and endorsement balling.
3: It doesn't sound like a Mitt Romney move to me. He's a little mm-hmm. too cautious for that, in my opinion. Um, I think mm-hmm. he stays out of it.
1: Yeah, but even the fact that if he stays out, he's not in for Lee, and, and I think that is an interesting um, development. Um, yeah. Uh, another true. issue. I wonder how it's going to. Yeah. And another, another issue. I wonder how it's going to play is. I don't know how much y'all been following the water crisis out west, but Utah is one of those states that's significantly impacted. And since they're in the Upper Colorado Basin, not the Lower Colorado Basin, you know, and they have to worry about you know places like Phoenix and Las Vegas and Los Angeles having some of that water. They're kind of seeing what they can do to curtail water usage in Utah. So this is kind of front and center for citizens of Utah. Mike Lee, from from my recollection of past positions, is no friend of, you know, saving the climate and changing course to do anything different. Could Utah voters, because this issue is facing them probably in a more direct way than it is a lot of other states, Could it play an outsized impact in this race if Evan McMullen has real solutions and really talks about this in a realistic way, Tim?
0: It could be the third most important issue there, I would think. But I still think inflation and the economy is going to supersede it. I I still think those two issues are going to be front and center. And that's where Lee is going to be on the right side of things because he's going to be running against Biden, who he says will, you know, be the author of of all evils. So, I, you know, while it might help McMullen a little bit, I certainly don't think he could propel him to a win or anything like that.
1: Yeah, and, and the sad and ironic thing I think here is. Water usage where the river runs through your state, if the snow comes and melts out of your mountains, and other states, of course, too, you can have a real impact on that. You know, what the price of oil is coming in from Saudi Arabia,
0: or if Russia
1: cuts their off oil off. American politicians have, you know, limited um, resources on what they can do, and water usage, you can really impact that, yet – People may very well vote on, um, you know, supply chains from China and oil prices from the Middle East and then make that the third issue in a state like Utah. And that, that is a um, sad state of affairs when people could, you know, actually vote on things that politicians would have a more direct impact on. Um, also, some places, if you certain industries, the water usage is more important than the gasoline in many ways, it depends on you know, if you're farming oh, yeah. there. If you're um, having recreational vehicles, you know, on some of those lakes and rivers, um, it, it impacts you more than the gas. Catherine, do you want to make a point?
3: No, I was just agreeing with you. I mean, water—water water yeah. is the next so. big going to be the next big battle, I think. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's the one that's going to be very tangible. Um, we're going to see it right off. I mean, you know, if, if pollination patterns, um, you know, get disrupted and there's less fruits and vegetables, and then prices go up, people are going to once again have this nebulous discussion of inflation, where they just blame whoever's in
0: charge, but, not
1: understanding but, yeah, but you know what but, goes into that but, underneath. But, just but, kind of but, but,
0: but one but 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 David, you know the 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 people of Utah. Did not like Donald Trump. I mean, that's putting it mildly. They didn't like him at all. But still, he won by twenty and a half percent over Joe Biden. Uh, They they are going to vote Republican Mm -hmm. until they prove to me that they're not going to vote Republican. And I think they're going to vote Republican by. uh, decent margin and that's why i think lee does not have a lot to worry about regardless of what issues might emerge between now and then they could have pictures of him performing devil worship and sacrifice or something and i still think the man would probably win because he's the republican nominee in an extremely republican state and i don't mean to diss Senator Lee, as far as I know, there's no scandal of any type associated with a man. He's just very, very conservative and, well, that kind of plays well in that state, I'd say, so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I do think he has a different brand of conservatism than they're used to a lot of them. I think they're more comfortable with Mitt Romney,
3: Warren
1: Hatch-type conservatism than they are Mike Lee conservatism, but that Republican brand In a place like Utah, it is a um, significant, you know, boost to your candidacy, um, to say the least. Well, let's try to hit another topic before Tom comes in, and um, something that stuck out to me was the um, South Carolina is putting together a bill because websites are going up, and, Catherine, you can probably tell us more about these kind of websites, that give information about, you know, reproductive choices Healthcare, I mean, it, it, frankly, it's really just healthcare information, but this South Carolina bill seeks to shut down those websites, and this is really bizarre to me, before we talk about the sites, is because this is kind of China-esque in how they treat Google, um, how you can limit you know, information like this. Uh, I don't know how it would stand up to a First Amendment challenge if the wallet was passed, but let's kind of back up. And, and Catherine, if you know more about these websites, tell us.
3: Yeah, well, it's specifically about abortion. It's not about anything else. It's specifically the websites that help people who need abortions um, where they can go. It it usually has – there's a couple of them. (laughs) and they have the laws and yeah. um, I'm sorry they have the laws, and um, some of them even have information on how to schedule an abortion, and you know what the requirements are as far as waiting periods or um, you know ultrasounds or whatever the requirements might be in the specific state and um, I do not believe that these this would stand up to First Amendment challenge But, you know, that doesn't stop Any of these uh, state legislatures They don't care if it's unconstitutional Or if it's illegal They'll still pass the law and try to enforce it um, Just to I mean, these are the kind of um, Laws that are really meant for primary voters So that they can say So they can stand up and say See what I did, I tried to fight those You know, abortionists um, Even if they know that it won't really be able to, I mean, how do they even enforce it? And what, yeah, and I mean, then, you, a, it, I mean, it's a very complicated thing because then how do you enforce it? How do you, and then who's liable? Are we talking about like the, you know, people who, who post the website or who host the website or, I, I mean, I, it's just, it's quite, Uh, It's quite a a thing To try to pass And enforce
1: Yeah um, uh, Tim if if we were to right now Google on Google Maps The state of Utah It would pull up casinos It would pull up brothels It would pull up Marijuana distribution facilities Because all three of those things Are legal in Nevada They're not legal here Um, I can look at them, though, here if I wanted to. Don't spend any time looking at that. But I'm just saying I could. So how is this any different than any other activity that's legal in one state and illegal in another,
0: you being able to see that stuff? Well, you know, I'm with Catherine on one thing. How would they even enforce such a law? How could they enforce it if say you downloaded it, it, you, for some of you techies out there if you know what the Tor's browser is. You download that browser. And, and it can't even be traced by conventional means. How are they going to keep people from getting How, how are they going to regulate the internet is what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. How, how are they going to How are they yeah. going to keep people from reading what they want to read. I mean, how are they going to get around the First Amendment? You know, with free speech and all such as that. Uh, um, the internet don't don't magically stop it at, at a state boundary or something like that. How are they even going to do anything about it? These people are going out of their minds. Like when uh, Louisiana, you know, tried and failed, I might add, to make abortion punishable by death. Or or, uh, out in Idaho, they're talking about their Republican Party platform won't make any exceptions for pregnant women whose lives become endangered. You know, they— why, why are they just pushing this further and further and further into just outright crazy territory? And I think that's what this bill is. Huh? How can they uh, possibly outlaw websites well, I'm on gonna, people's personal computers?
1: I'm going to give you the how, but when I give you the how, you're going to see how ridiculous this Notice I mentioned China. And yeah. China has a lot of their own browsers where the gov- the state, I mean the, the, I mean the national, I say the state, um, the government controls the companies that do the browsing. Google, of course, wants to get in there because there's a billion people. And so Google has um, done some things to their search in China that have been roundly criticized as a um, limit on free expression. Now, they do this because there's a billion people in China, and sometimes a lot of companies have um, done things that they know aren't right because there's a billion people in China, and they'll do it. Are they going to do it for the population of one state in America when a lot of other states with a whole lot more people are completely against this? I think the chances are so far to the right of the decimal point that, you know, any of these companies will do this, it's just totally unrealistic. So I think, Catherine, you were right that this is more of a show that they can talk about, I sponsored this, I voted for this, than this ever, A, passing, and B, being instituted in any kind of way. But it's just a foolishest waste of time. You know, Marco Rubio talked about a bill where I think a majority of the people don't think it's a waste of time. You want to talk about a waste of time. This bill that these South Carolina lawmakers are talking about is a total waste of time. But now well, I'm going to transition one, but over. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Let's let, let, let come back to it in a minute. Um, but I want to welcome back into the kudzu vine for I don't know how many times for public policy polling. Welcome, Tom Jensen. Hey, good to be with you all. All right, Tom, good to have you back. Uh, Tom, I want to start off uh, because we know there's so many good states and races that y'all polled, and we're going to get into that. But I want to start off with the overarching um, question about polling. You know, polling in 2016 was all along. Then there were some corrections made. In 2020, it was often some states and not often others. And so... I'm sure more corrections are being made. And also, I think the pool of possible people being polled may have improved. But kind of give us – walk us through that about, like, what happened in 2020? What has been – what has either been corrected or have people changed since then? And what's it looking like as far as how to poll in 2022?
2: Sure. Well, I think that one thing that we definitely discovered over the last five or six years is that polling has been really, really good when Trump's not on the ballot. And it's had a really hard time when Trump has been on the ballot. So one reason it was so surprising that the polling was off in 2020 was that after it was off in 2016, 2017, 18, 19 were some of the more accurate years for polling that we've really ever seen. Uh, so I think there was a lot of assumption going into 2020 that after polling had done so well the previous three years that, uh, that things would continue to be good, and obviously that wasn't the case. Uh, so then the polling's off in 2020, uh, and then everybody's like, okay, polling's dead. Uh, and then in 2021 and so far this year, polling's been really good again. Um, So I think that there's something unique about Trump's presence on the ballot that really does throw polling off that uh, I I think – I predict that this will be a pretty good year for polling without Trump on the ballot. And then we'll just have to see uh, (laughs) whether he's back in there in 2024 and what impact that has. Uh, But to talk a little more specifically about a few of the factors that I think are sort of affecting the accuracy of polling – One thing that I think threw things off in 2020 is when I look especially at our own polling in 2020, the polling that we did over the summer um, when everybody was sort of staying at home still came pretty close to the outcome of the election in most states. Uh, And it was actually our polling in September and October, much closer to the election, uh, that was further off from the outcome. And that's sort of unusual. You would expect that the closer... You get to the election the more accurate the polling is but what happened in 2020 that was a very unique dynamic uh it said in the summer pretty much everyone was still home early days of COVID. then in the fall republicans sort of started resuming their lives and democrats were still staying home so when we, we would conduct a poll democrats were home to answer the poll republicans were out living their lives and not answering polls as much and i think that is a big factor Uh, and why the polling ended up being so pro-democratic, especially towards the end in 2020, when if you just looked at the polls in June, July, that sort of thing, they weren't very far off from what the outcome ended up being. So that's the dynamic that I think played a really big role in 2020 uh, that I don't think is going to be as much of uh, an issue or, or probably even an issue at all this time around when most people sort of Gone relatively close back to living their lives the way that they did before the pandemic. So, I'm pretty optimistic about how the polling is going to shake out this year. Uh, the polling that we did across the country last year and the polling that we've done uh, across the country so far this year has pretty much ended up uh, predicting the things that have happened. So, um, you know, we, you know, we had some people say, you know, are you going to make huge major changes to how you do everything? And sometimes the the answer to that is not to make huge major changes to correct for what you did in 2020, because that might make you wrong in 2022 because 2022 is a different year. So we're actually pretty much doing things the same way that we did in 2020, the last couple of years, uh, and we've had a lot of accuracy. So I think, you know, certainly the, the polling industry took a hit, and I get it, but I think that. Uh, there were some unique circumstances then that maybe aren't still in play. Yes. I mean, polling is a tool
1: and it's, it's you know, if the tool didn't work one time, you just don't give up on the tool. It may not have been the best tool for the job at that time. And then it comes back around and obviously we need it because what replaces it? Um, hard to know. I wanted to ask you kind of about a, a theory of, you know, why some of that happened and, and the voters that led to. A lot of people, you know, speculated that because people associate with polling with media, even though, you know, there's plenty of independent firms like yours that are not media, but they kind of, you know, related to media that, that Trump, hardcore Trump base, that they just didn't answer polls, um, they, you know, because it was fake news and rigged and everything else. They didn't answer polls. And, of course, those folks dropped out and, and um, didn't uh, you know, participate, which I do find kind of ironic because when Jordan Clepper or Walter Masterson or all these other folks go to interview them at the rallies, they can't wait to talk, and, and they probably look <laughs> a lot better in the poll anonymously than they do on the camera, but there's that theory. Polly may not be able to answer this, but I'm sure you've done research either through focus groups or read on interviews or what have you, How accurate is that thesis, and how much do you think it may have changed as
2: well? I think there is a little bit of truth to that, and I think that it's something that is probably a little cyclical. So what I think might have happened a little bit those last couple months in 2020 is the polls were bad for Trump. So at that point, Trump supporters aren't liking polls, and then they don't answer polls. We're not seeing that sort of thing so much right now. Because the polls are so bad for Biden, I think some, those same people who were like, eh, you know, polls are all liberal, worthless junk. Uh, I'm not going to answer in 2020. Now they're getting bombarded with headlines talking about Biden's historically unpopular, blah, blah, blah. That's something more that they want to be a part of. Uh, we've really seen in our raw data uh, this cycle compared to last cycle that Republicans and people who are supporters of Trump are much more excited about answering polls now uh, than they were then. I think because it's just more fun to say that you disapprove of Biden uh, than it was to have to sort of defend Trump and that sort of thing. And this is something that we kind of see just move cycle to cycle. I think that uh, we did over the last four years see Democrats more energized to answer polls because they wanted to tell us how much they hated Trump. And now – to some extent, we have Republicans more excited to answer polls because they want to tell us how much they hate Biden.
1: Yes, um, interesting analysis, and it does make sense. Now, I didn't ask about any of the state races, but I'm gonna be kind to Tim and Catherine, and I'm gonna pass it along. And if I think they've forgotten any states that we got to ask about, <laughs> I'll
0: pick that up. But I'm gonna pass it to Tim. Sounds good. Hey, good evening, Tom. Isn't it kind of, David, to be kind to us tonight, buddy? (laughs) So, look, I ain't believing I'm starting with the state of Maryland. But a guy named uh, Cox is the reason I'm doing that. And uh, Governor Hogan said that the primary results in Maryland ensure that
2: his party is
0: going to be swept in November. Is he
2: correct? Well, I think he is correct, and I think what that speaks to more broadly, Tim, is this uh, strategy that Democrats have been engaging in across the country to sort of mess around a little bit in some of these Republican primaries. The Democratic Governors Association uh, decided to run a bunch of ads about Dan Cox during the primary, uh, attacking him, you know, saying that he was so conservative and so supportive of Trump and that sort of thing. Uh, And as it turns out, that made Republican primary voters want to vote for him. Uh, And he not only won, he he won by double digits. Um, So there's a lot of hand-wringing that Democrats shouldn't be doing this sort of thing. Uh, But here's the reality. I mean, Larry Hogan won the governor's race as a Republican in Maryland in 2014 and in 2018, even when 2018 was a great year for Democrats nationally and mm-hmm. somebody who's somebody uh who's very much sort of trying to carry on that Larry Hogan banner Kelly Shoals was running in the primary. Democrats had a very crowded primary field where you just weren't really sure who was going to advance or not. And it seemed like given that Maryland had voted for a couple times in a row Republican for governor, given that Larry Hogan was very popular, given that this moderate woman was running uh, to sort of try to carry on what he's been doing, uh, I think if she'd won, you might have had something close to a toss-up race for governor. But instead Mm -hmm. now, because the Democratic uh, Governors Association sort of held uh, – sort of got the word out about who Dan Cox is – Now he's the candidate, and he cannot win because he's too extreme. I mean, he's an insurrectionist. Maryland might vote for a super moderate sort of Republican, but they're not going to vote for a far-right sort of Republican like that. So in Mm -hmm. a year when Democrats are having to play defense for governor in Michigan, defense in Wisconsin, defense in Pennsylvania, defense in Minnesota, defense in Kansas, the list could go on and on. Now Democrats have pretty much won the Maryland governor's race in July, and that's one less race that they have to worry about over the next four months when there's so many races to worry about. So I think that Maryland showed that this is a very good strategy uh, that Democrats have embarked on to mess around in these uh, primaries. And, you know, we won't be talking about Maryland again, most likely this cycle, whereas... Uh, if Kelly Schultz had won the nomination, you know, in October we might have been talking about a a toss-up race. And it's a whole lot cheaper to win the race in July than it is to have to be fighting it out to win it in October. So there's a lot of debate Mm -hmm. about this strategy, but I think in Maryland certainly it really worked out.
0: So uh, Governor Hogan announced just in the last couple of days, as you know, that he is not going to support Mr. Cox. And uh, speaking of strategy, is, is, is what, what is he doing? Is he, is, I mean, is he genuine about it? Is he setting himself up to do something on the national stage?
2: What, what, what is
0: Governor Hogan uh, doing here?
2: Well, I do think he's setting himself up to do something on the national stage. I mean, it's pretty widely speculated that he wants to run for president. Uh, and mm-hmm. I guess he's trying to establish himself as sort of like the sane Republican candidate. Uh, mm-hmm. But you would, think, you would think that what happened on Tuesday in his own state might show him that there's not much of a market for being the sane Republican candidate. If you can't even get your preferred successor within single digits in the primary in your own home state, I'm not sure how much your brand of Republicanism is going to appeal to Republicans in any other state. So I think mm-hmm. that... Hogan, I think Hogan's a genuine moderate. I think he's sincere that he's not going to vote for Dan Cox in the general. But I'm not clear what his angle is with this presidential thing, unless it's just to get famous. I mean, he'll get famous. He's the kind of candidate if he really runs for president, the media is going to love him. That might get him to three percent in New Hampshire, uh, <laughs> but but he'll get on TV a lot, and he'll probably you know be able to write a book and sell some copies and. There's nothing the media loves more than the reasonable Republican. You get a lot of attention for being the reasonable Republican. <laughs> the, actual re- the actual Republicans don't, don't care a lick for you, but, uh, but you'll get that sort of fawning media coverage. So I think that's where he's going.
0: Yeah, and and speaking of New Hampshire,
2: let's just go north and
0: go there. Um, Everyone on the Democratic side, I know I did, breathed a sigh of relief when Governor Sununu chose not to run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, barring a national GOP wave, and I, I think that's a poss- distinct possibility myself, but barring a GOP wave, is Maggie Hassan safe?
2: Um, I don't think she's safe. Uh, I think she's probably narrowly favored. One thing that's interesting about New Hampshire is that obviously we know that Joe Biden has poor approval numbers everywhere. uh, But New Hampshire Uh is somewhere where we've seen his numbers sort of fall particularly acutely. Uh, Our most recent poll there, I think we found that he only had a 35 percent approval rating, 56 percent of voters disapproved of him. And this is a state that he won by eight points. So to have a minus 21 approval rating in the state that you won by eight points, uh, he's down everywhere, but being down 29 points from his margin on Election Day 2020 there is pretty extreme, and I think that uh, definitely means that the the Senate race is going to be a tough one. New Hampshire's been a state that historically uh, can have even more dramatic swings from election to election than most states do. One thing that was pretty wild the last time we had a new Democratic president— is I think that Barack Obama had won New Hampshire by maybe even 16 points, but it was at least 12. Uh, It was something in that sort of range. And then in the U.S. Senate race in 2010, it was an open seat. Democrats felt like it was a really great opportunity. Uh, And then Kelly Ayotte won that open seat for the Senate by 23 points, just a couple years Mm -hmm. after uh, Democrats had won the presidential race by double digits in the state. So that shows the extent to which New Hampshire – can have these really dramatic uh, swings from election to election. So I think Hassan's the favorite, but I still think it could be close. But one thing that's kind of interesting from this New Hampshire poll that we did uh, is Chris Sununu, who, as you noted, is so popular, uh, won Mm -hmm. by over 30 points. Won by over 30 points for re-election in uh, 2020. Um, So you would think that if he won by 30 in 2020 – and Biden has only a 35% approval rate in the state, you'd think, oh, well, Sunun is definitely headed for winning by 30 again. Uh, And we actually found that when we polled the state recently, he was only up by 10, Uh, certainly still favored uh, for re-election, but a lot tighter than it was two years ago, even Mm -hmm. as uh, Biden's so unpopular there. And I think something that that speaks to that's been sort of unusual in our polling Uh, especially over the last month or so, um, is that usually the worse the president's approval rating is, the worse his party does. Uh, And we've seen a situation over the last month where Biden's approval rating has gotten worse and worse, but overall prospects for Democrats for this year have gotten, if anything, a little bit better, and they certainly haven't got worse and worse. So we're seeing trends sort of work in different ways uh, this cycle than we've necessarily been accustomed to in the past um you you know you I think in traditional terms,
0: I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, the economy, people are going to vote their pocketbooks, you know first, right now, Biden has deposit an approval rating on his handling of the economy. You have mentioned his overall approval rating, and I'm thinking in traditional terms. That usually means that the party in power in the White House is going to take a pasting. But yet you say Democrats have been gaining in the polling. Have you any idea what exactly is driving that? Is it some of these other issues that have entered the fray? like, I don't know, abortion, voting rights, gay rights, those sort of things, the
2: Supreme Court decisions? Do you have any idea? Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely there's one overarching reason that things aren't as bad for Democrats as they should be, and that's that voters think Republicans are crazy. So they may be totally <laughs> unhappy with Biden, but they think the alternative's crazy too. Um, and I think the number one issue – into that is, as you noted, uh, the abortion issue. I think that people always just sort of took for granted that abortion rights were protected, and now that it's clear that they're not protected, that brings a lot of sort of well-educated suburban voters possibly back into the Democratic fold. Let me sort of talk about that specifically through the context of what happened in the Virginia governor's race last year mm-hmm. and how that might be different now um obviously virginia you know was starting to be seen more and more as sort of a solidly blue state democrats won it for president four times in a row between 2008 and 2020 it was never any closer than six points over that period of time uh in 2020 joe biden won the state by double digits and then all of a sudden republicans win the governor's race by a couple points last fall which was quite a departure from what had been happening in the state in recent years and the biggest reason other than democrats didn't turn out enough the biggest reason that republicans were able to win the governor's race in virginia last year was because the places where democrats had made huge gains among well-educated suburban voters because of the backlash against trump we're talking about the sorts of places where you know maybe Mitt romney won but then hillary clinton and joe biden won because voters in those places were willing to vote for a Mitt Romney-style Republican, but they weren't willing to vote for a Donald Trump-style Republican. Those places, as soon as Trump was out of office, went back to voting Republican last year, and that's why uh, Glenn Youngkin was able to win the governor's race. But abortion being taken away by the Supreme Court is the kind of thing that will take those well-educated suburban voters And put them right back to the Democrats because they're like, okay, you know, we mostly just wanted to get rid of Trump. But now this sort of extremism is still here, even though Trump's out of the picture. We may not be that enamored with Democrats, and the Democrats may want to raise our taxes more than we care for when we're really rich. But we'll take that over stuff like abortion getting taken away. So I think Mm -hmm. that this year's election – I think in this year's elections, a lot of those kinds of voters who went away from the Democrats last year that allowed Republicans to win in Virginia, that allowed Republicans to make it so close in New Jersey, those kind of people may be back to voting for the Democrats this year because the Republicans have gone so crazy. In addition to the abortion issue being a really big one, I don't think that these ongoing hearings are doing anything to help the Republican cause either. I think that uh, it's sort of uh, – never-ending cavalcade of, of, of bad news to Republicans. So uh, even though Democrats theoretically should be completely in terrible uh, position for this fall, Republicans are doing a lot to uh, sort of give away their natural advantage.
0: Hmm. Well, I thank you for that analysis, and there's a bunch of states and stuff left, including this one, but I... I think I'm going to throw it over to Catherine to carry on. Catherine?
3: Well, geez, Tim, you stole my question, my big question, which was going to be about abortion and how that was going to, what kind of impact you thought that might have. Do you think it's going to have an impact on the election? I mean, do you think, like, I, I know people are um, troubled by it. Do you think by November uh, they're still going to be upset about it? I hope so, but uh, yeah, I'm
2: just <laughs> I do Go think ahead. that it's going to have an impact. Yeah, I do think it's going to have an impact, and I think the place where it's going to have the biggest impact is in terms of sort of what it does to voter engagement and motivation. Uh, what we have been finding throughout this election cycle up until about a month ago uh, was that Republicans were much more excited to get out and vote this year uh, than Democrats were, And a lot of the time, who's excited? is what determines who wins in midterm elections. You know, you may not even necessarily have uh, that many people who voted Democratic last time, vote Republican this time around, or that sort of thing. But what you often have in midterm elections is, uh, let's just put it in Biden and Trump terms from 2020, maybe 60% of the people who voted for Biden in 2020 come out to vote, but 70% of the people who voted for Trump in 2020 come out to vote. Well, if that engagement level is so different, it doesn't even matter whether Republicans can win over anybody who didn't vote for them last time or not. They can win elections just because their side is so much more motivated. And that's what we were seeing as sort of the likely direction that things were headed in for most of the last year and a half. But ever since the abortion decision came down, now we're seeing that Democratic voters are about even with the Republicans in terms of their engagement level – Uh, And that totally changes the the tenor of this year's election. What that means is that Republicans uh, have to actually win over people who they didn't have vote for them last time around instead of just winning because of the structural nature of who turns out to vote and who doesn't. And it's a very clear dividing line for when Republicans went from having a big enthusiasm, enthusiasm advantage to things being pretty much equal The dividing line was definitely when the abortion decision came down. So I think the big key to your point about whether this will last through November, Democrats have got to make sure that that anger uh, about the direction that things are heading in remains for another 15 weeks. Uh, And if it does, it'll still probably be a good year for Republicans, but it may not be the sort of total bloodbath that it was headed for before the abortion decision came down.
3: Well, I just I just think that the other part of this is not just voter enthusiasm, enthusiasm, but also the people who are one issue voters who, the you know, some of these very dogmatic pro-life uh, voters are, you know, they're happy now. They got their they got their thing. They're not going to be as uh, motivated to vote and get engaged as they have been for the last, you know, 40 years or whatever. So, uh, yeah, that's, I think you're right. I'm, I'm, I was expecting those kind of, um, results, but I'm relieved that they actually, that it's actually happening. So thank you for that. That was really my main question. So I'm going to pass it back to David who may pass it back to Tim for more on the state. Thanks Tom. Always appreciate having Mm -hmm. you on. Yep.
1: Yes. Um, well, Tom, now I get a chance to ask some uh, specific state questions. And one that I found very interesting is the state of Michigan. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, you know, she had the kidnapping plot. Of course, the, the very high-profile protests with guns where the people were so upset. They couldn't eat at Ruckers during the pandemic. Um, <laughs> and And she came under all the fire from her detractors. But yet when the state as a whole gets polled, she is leading very comfortably. And I know y'all polled on the state as well. What have you found about what's going on there?
2: Yeah, we're usually finding her ahead by seven or eight points for reelection. Now, one thing I'll note is it's usually like 48 to 40, 47 to 41, that sort of thing. So she's not over 50%. I expect that the race is still going to end up being relatively close. Uh, But given that Biden has a 35 percent approval rating there, just like he does in New Hampshire, uh, you definitely would not expect a combination of Biden having a 35 percent approval rating and Whitmer being up by seven or eight points. And one fascinating thing that happened in Michigan, and I think it again speaks to the way that Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot, uh, is that there's a bunch of people running for governor on the Republican side. But the two most serious candidates who had raised the most money and uh, seemed like they were going to be the top contenders both got kicked off the ballot because they didn't get enough valid signatures. Uh, so I think that sort of shows the, the weakness of the candidates Republicans are putting forth in a lot of these races uh, that you would end up with a situation where the two most serious candidates didn't even end up getting on the ballot. Um, So you're almost definitely at that point going to end up having sort of a more second-tier Republican uh, nominee put up against Whitmer. And then beyond that, one of the leading Republican candidates who did get on the ballot got arrested by the FBI last month for his role in the insurrection. So we were talking about in Maryland the Republicans put up an insurrectionist, and that's certainly not going to apply in Maryland. Michigan's a much more middle-of-the-road kind of state, but I think it's a pretty – safe bet that if republicans put up an insurrectionist there uh you know you're not going to necessarily have gretchen whitmer end up winning by 20 points but i think she's going to win if they put up somebody who's been arrested this year against her uh so i think i think what we see is sort of a common theme across a lot of these races is that you know certainly republicans theoretically should have a good chance but if you're good candidates get kicked off the ballot because they're sloppy about their signatures, and the candidates who you're left over with got arrested by the FBI for what they did in the insurrection, that kind of throws away your chance. It's not like Gretchen Whitmer is beloved. We tend to find that voters are very evenly divided, and their feelings about her, about half the state likes her and about half the state doesn't like her. But you can't beat someone with no one, and That's kind of what the Republicans are trying to do in a race like this, and there's a lot of races across the country. I think the Michigan example is somewhat extreme. There's a lot of races we could talk about across the country where Republicans are sort of shooting themselves in the foot by putting up terrible alternatives to these Democrats. Yeah, I I will say this. I I agree that Gretchen Whitmer is probably going to
1: pull this out because she's probably more popular than Roy Barnes in 2002. But in that case, he was beaten by no one because Sonny Perdue at that point in his career was certainly um, a total unknown. But um, that's another race for another time 20 years ago. Well, you also pulled on Arizona. We know they have a really interesting Um, Senate race where Mark Kelly's running for re-election. We know they have a governor's race where Doug Ducey's not running for re-election, and some of the candidates that are running in that state on the Republican side are outside the mainstream, to say the least. So tell us about both those races.
2: Yeah, Arizona's the kind of state that on paper really ought to go right back to the Republicans this year. Uh, Democrats won both the presidential race and the Senate race in the state by under a point in 2020. Uh, so, you know, Democrats barely get across the finish line in those races in 2020. And, of course, this is supposed to be a really strong Republican political climate. And for most of the year, I've been saying that the political climate had moved about seven or eight points to the right of where it was in 2020. So you think about Democrats winning in Arizona by under a point. The political climate in the country moves seven or eight points to the right. You would think that in these races for governor and Senate that the Democrats would be pretty much done for. But in both of those races, Republicans are moving toward nominating the most extreme candidate. Uh, In the Senate race, uh, Blake Masters has got the Trump seal of approval, um, and he has very extreme conservative views. and. He's leading the race against, uh, you know, some opponents who have actually been elected to stuff before, and and Masters is pretty much new on the scene, but he's in first place because of that Trump seal of approval. Uh, And then the governor's race, Carrie Lake, um, is a a former television anchor. That's, you know, her only real qualification for uh, running for office. And for now, she's in the lead in the governor's race again, because she has that sort of Uh, super-extreme Trump seal of approval. Um, And Arizona is the kind of place in contrast to Maryland where it's possible that if the Republicans nominate Blake Masters and Carrie Lake, they'll still win because of the state being so middle-of-the-road and it being a strongly pro-Republican political climate. But it's very much keeping Democrats in the game uh, where maybe they shouldn't be in the game on paper if republicans go forth and nominate such extreme candidates so uh again that theme just keeps coming up that it's like on paper this should be you know really really good for republicans but in all of these places they are sort of either already have nominated weak candidates or they're moving towards nominating weak candidates and then by contrast you see the democrats just raising scads and scads of money when you look at the mark kelly's and Raphael warnock's of the world uh the republicans are never going to be able to keep up on the fundraising front so we'll see if democrats end up pulling out a lot of wins in places where theoretically they shouldn't be able to this year yes
1: and one final state one final question for you um in georgia the polls we've seen have shown that yes
0: Ticket-splitting
1: voters do exist. Brian Kemp has a, um, you know, probably a single-digit lead. Raphael Warnock has a
0: single-digit
1: lead. And when you do the math, it shows that there are Kemp-Warnock voters. The polling you've seen or conducted, uh, what does it look like in those two races? Is it going to stay some ticket-splitters, or are people going to break each way and maybe change that race?
2: Well, you know, I don't think there are going to be many ticket splitters, but if you start both races off at 50-50 and 2% of the Warnock voters vote for Kemp and 2% of the – well, yeah, that, (laughs) because that's that's the sort of ticket splitting we're seeing, as you say, Um, then you could easily end up in a world where Warnock wins 51-49 and Kemp wins 51-49. So uh, it doesn't take a whole lot of people – Uh, sort of matching that unusual trend to get you to the point where you could end up with a split decision in those races. But I think the main bottom line with both of those races is I expect them both to be very close to the end. I'll be surprised uh, uh, when it gets to be November 7th, election eve, or let's say that we talked on November 6th, the Sunday before the election, if either of those races is off the board as a competitive race, I would be quite surprised. Yes. Well, um, before I let you go, uh, Tim
1: Cather, it seems like we've got our guest book for November six. Tom volunteered. Taggy it. <laughs> but yeah. um, I'll just. But but in all seriousness, we do want to have you back before before the election for sure. Um, but go ahead and uh, tell our listeners like if they want to. Follow you on social media. Look at the website where you'll post some of your polls. I mean, we know a lot of your polls are private, but some are released to the public, where folks can, you know, see all that.
2: Yeah, probably the best place to see stuff that does get released is uh, our Twitter account, which is at PPPPolls, and then our website is. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and sharing all that good information.
1: Keep up on with the polling, and then, like I said, we will get you back before the election, not necessarily
2: this Sunday before, but who knows, and then we'll um, get some more great data from you. Okay. It's always really great talking to all of you. I appreciate everything the three of you do.
3: Thank you, Tom. We we love everyone.
1: Yeah. Bye. Yeah. That was Tom Jensen of Public Policy Polling. And uh, we've got just a minute or two left. And, Catherine, you were going to make a point about the websites in South Carolina. So I obviously want to start off by letting you make that point.
3: Well, I just want to say that even though um, we think that this is unconstitutional and how are they going to enforce it and all that, it still has an impact because it makes people frightened that if they do something, they're going to get in trouble. So – even though it it we don't know how they would enforce it or all of that, it still has an impact and it still hurts the people who need the services. So I, I just wanted to clarify that.
1: Yeah, I think I mean you're right that somebody if it was hosted in the site, somebody might be fearful of that. Although you can host things anywhere no, I'm about, nowadays. And then if I'm somebody was about someone producing the content into what.
3: No, that's not the people I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm talking about a mm-hmm. uh, person who's pregnant who is looking for services in South Carolina being afraid to look on the, web, on the Internet for fear that they're going to be tracked down and somehow, uh, um, you know, penalized for it. So it, it adds further yeah. stress to a person who's already very concerned about their health and what their next steps are So that's the kind of um, fear that I'm talking about
1: Yes, and, and, and um, you know, kinda, I, I'm wondering And it will take a while to get this kind of data But if um, we end up seeing because of this law you know, I think a lot of people think Oh, well, there's going to be less abortions Therefore, pregnancies are going to go up And live births are going to go up And the population you know, is going to rise you know, to some point You know, people aren't going to start having, you know, 10 kids and a family. I don't think anytime soon um, on a regular frequency without that. But I think actually what may happen is you're going to have less, you know, unplanned pregnancies because people may have less sex. I mean, just to be honest about it. And therefore, you may have a drop in the pregnancy rate in a lot of places. And that's going to be a, a very much an unintended consequence Of some of these Republican lawmakers who seem to, you know, like the idea of, you know, people having more children, but they're just missing the targets. They're just not understanding, you know, demographics and and who's wanting what and when. Um, So I think that's going to be like a discussion we have with, you know, Ron Hettrick five years from now, we have data, uh, not, you know, five weeks from now to unfold. Well, guys, uh, it seems like well, I don't think we have time to get into another topic. Some of the things we have planned may keep anyway till next week, and who knows in the next seven days what's going to come up in the world of politics for us to discuss. So until then, Ben the Kuzubine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all.
3: Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and
1: united America still be a force?